an agricultural empire, the fulfillment of the dreams of pioneers, unexcelled in beauty, rich in achievement, and still offering a challenge mighty as the mountains. This is our Northwest Empire. I'm Felix Bunnell, resident historian for Cairo News Radio. Heard with Dave Ross and Colleen O'Brien, Wednesdays and Fridays on Seattle's Morning News. On this episode of the Resident Historian Podcast, when Victoria, B.C. and Vancouver Island brace for an attack by the Russian Navy. In fact, there's one ship called the Chrysler who comes right into Esquimalt Harbor uh, on a snooping expedition. And then, from the archives, the Oregon man who went postal for Washington history. Hobbyists, which is what he was, sometimes produce pretty important works. And stay tuned for a roundup of exhibits, tours, talks, and other history events happening in the Pacific Northwest with the Never Green Minute. But first, let's go all over the map. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. Here it is Friday, time for our resident historian Felix Bunnell to join us for All Over the Map, which is a quick look at the stories behind local places and things. And this week, the abbreviated and convoluted history of abbreviations for the evergreen state. It's full of twists and turns, maybe a little bit of intrigue here. So the name of our state, Washington, has a lot of letters, I think 10 if I'm counting correctly. People have been abbreviating Washington for a long time on documents and envelopes and signs. Other than old newspapers, I think the oldest example I've seen is on a cornerstone of a building in Port Townsend built in the 1880s. It says on a cast iron plate right down at sidewalk level, right on Water Street, Washington Ironworks, Seattle, WT. WT? It's so cool for Washington Territory. It's one of my coolest little street-level artifacts. Just such a cool piece of history. But once statehood came in 1889, the abbreviation wars evolved to two different choices in two different camps. Okay, a war might be a bit of an exaggeration. But one was surprisingly WN, uh, capital W, small n, period. And that really stuck around. I could find examples of that in yeah. print as late as the early 1980s. Well, it makes sense, first and last letters. Yeah, but it's hard to say. What do you say? It's not like, anyway. Well, what's wa? Well, it's it's easier to say than one, I think. I guess so. All right. See, it's a war, Dave. See, I'm trying to. Trying I understand. To... <laughs> no, I get it. I get it. <laughs> I see which camp you're in. I can tell. <laughs> The other abbreviation was WASH, capital W, everything yeah. else lowercase, followed by a period. And that one's easiest to use when speaking. Seattle WASH, it's like Boston Mass, same kind of thing. Yeah. Now, WASH is also the recommended abbreviation in the AP Style Manual, so you still see it in print a lot, even on our website here at My Northwest. Now, the real upstart around here is WA, W-A. For this, the credit or the blame goes to the post office. They began officially recognizing state abbreviations back in the late 19th century. But in 1963 is when they came up with a zip code, Zone Improvement Plan is what yep. zip stands for, to, because mail was becoming more automated, mail sorting, and they wanted a simpler system. So in July of 63, they issued a list of state abbreviations, and it was really confusing because they were all different sizes. Um, New Jersey was NJ, two letters. Nebraska was NEB, three letters. And Washington was WASH, W-A-S-H. Yeah. And so it was very confusing. That didn't last long. In October of 63, they put out a new list with all those two-letter things that we recognize now. But they didn't start asking people to use it till the late 60s when the automation stuff really kicked in. Um, and there's a lot of confusion. I found a Seattle Times article from 1968 where it says the National Zip Code Directory says that the state abbreviation is WN. The only evidence I could find of that. Hmm. So it's very confusing. Um, I guess it's like so much about the 1960s. It really was anything goes, right? right. It was just oh, free love. Crazy. It was Woodstock. Love, it was yep. Wash, One, or Wah. Mm-hmm. Wah didn't really settle down until about the 1980 or so is when it really k- kicks into gear. One quick little wrinkle, if you have a pleasure boat. Do you have a ski boat, Dave, or a fishing boat? No, I do not. (laughs) (laughs) 
The registration is WN. WN, yes. That's because the Coast Guard decades ago chose WN as because they it was it was they like they're like you they like WN. Mm-hmm. And then when I talked to the State Department of Licensing yesterday, and they said when they they took over from the Coast Guard in the early eighties. They just stuck with WN. Yeah. And they also said no one has ever called to ask them a question about WN versus WA Only you. in the history of the Department of Licensing until now. Yeah, so well, we're getting to the bottom of these things one time. A lot of people time. say that when they get a call from you. It, that is a common reaction. Yeah, if it's not just hanging up, it's uh, – Don't yeah. you know that happened 100 years ago? <laughs> yeah. Yes, that's why I'm calling. Anyway, so WA, WN, WASH, IMHO, it's, you know, it's up to you to choose. So my, the takeaway is that when Dave Ross gets the yacht, it has to be WN. WN, yes, okay. exactly. When we're all having a party on the, the Dave it. Ross yacht. Whether we travel by water, land, or air, we are thrilled by the scenic grandeur of the evergreen state. Six forty-eight, and it's a little-known chapter in Northwest history. But our resident historian Felix Spinell says Britain's Royal Navy used to have a sprawling base on Vancouver Island, and a crisis half a world away at the time once had Victoria, B.C., preparing for a Russian attack. So this is history ripped right from today's headlines. Felix brought to you live. By Lake Washington windows and doors. Indeed, yeah, there was a Royal Navy base, thousands of acres at Esquimalt, which is on Vancouver Island, just west of Victoria and just across the Strait of Juan de Fuca from the Olympic Peninsula in the United States. Victoria was where the Hudson's Bay Company moved their regional headquarters after the boundary for the international uh, border was set in 1846. And this Royal Navy base was there from about 1850 until 1910. Docks, shipyards, a hospital. It was a true outpost of the British Empire. Now, in 1877... Russia was at war with Turkey. This was about 20 years after Russia had been defeated in the Crimean War. Britain had an alliance with Turkey, which meant that a state of tension existed between Britain and Russia. This tension actually had a name, the Anglo-Russian Crisis of 1877-1878. And for the British, it had global reach. The British were on the alert against the Russians around the world. They were the number one possible enemy, and they were showing uh, the Russians were showing their strength in every sea and every part of the world. That's Barry Goff. He's a legend, an author, historian, professor emeritus in Victoria. A book he wrote 50 years ago about the Royal Navy in B.C. is a classic. It's something of an eye-opener, especially about 19th century history. The Anglo-Russian crisis touched the West Coast of North America 140 years ago. In the spring of 1877, there were reports of a squadron of Russian naval vessels in Northern California. It caused a stir from the Golden State all the way to British Columbia. The Russians went all the way down to San Francisco. They had uh, about uh, six or seven vessels down there of all sizes. And uh, American authorities there were quite quite interested in what they were doing. They were well aware that the, the Russians were on the lookout for what they might possibly do to destroy American commerce or Canadian or British commerce anywhere in the eastern Pacific. That squadron of Russian ships in San Francisco didn't destroy anything in California, Oregon, or Washington Territory. But on February 18, 1878, they did pull off something of a fast one at the naval base in British Columbia. In fact, there's one ship um, called the Chrysler who comes right into Esquimalt Harbor um, uh, on a snooping expedition, although the commanding officer says, uh, I'm sorry, we need repairs here. But the Admiral ashore can figure this one out pretty quickly, and he realizes that this is absolutely bogus. They've come in here 
uh, to Esquimalt Harbor to see what the hell's going on uh, and uh, what defenses the British have there and, and uh, would it be easy to attack. So it was something of a spy mission. And though they didn't attack, the visit of the Kreiser was something of a wake-up call to speed up coastal defense efforts on Vancouver Island. Local politicians got federal funding to build batteries of big guns, not unlike what would come to American territory a few decades later at places like Fort Warden and Fort Casey. So meanwhile, the Anglo-Russian crisis ended in May of 1878 when the issues were settled at a diplomatic meeting called the Congress of Berlin. Now, beyond that brief Russian menace, Barry Goff's bigger thesis is that the Royal Navy base helped counter an existential threat that faced Victoria, it faced B.C., it just faced Canada's very West Coast presence. My uh, historical argument has been uh, that had we not had a Navy here, uh, somebody would have come and taken this territory. Uh, uh, so sea power and naval power is really important in defending uh, interests on shore. And Barry Goff says it wasn't the Russians who posed the biggest threat. Do you care to take a guess at who the biggest threat to B.C. was, Dave? Uh, no idea. Uh, you know, I was surprised. It actually goes, the honor goes to the United States. <laughs> um, I was a little surprised. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> It didn't quite sound like a tragedy to me. Even towards the end of the 19th century, there were uh, persons in, in Congress like uh, Champ Clark who thought that um, the United States should uh, own all of Canada yeah. and uh, <laughs> have the Stars and Stripes fly, flying on the North Pole. So this was, this is what happens in Congress from time to time. <laughs> no, come on. That, would, that wouldn't be so bad now, would it? <laughs> <laughs> You know, really, you know, what would be the difference? Well, the difference is we would have national health care now. <laughs> I hadn't thought of it that way. I think you're right, though. And the, there's no record of anyone on the, the Canada side saying, American warship, you can go, you yeah. know, finish the, finish the thought. No, I mean, that, that's, that's one thing that I actually yeah. do recall being taught about American history, that there were plenty of Americans who had their designs on Canada. Yeah, and it, would be, it wouldn't be nice to be able to drive all the way to Alaska without having to wait in line there at the border. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> who who actually drives to Alaska? <laughs> some some people do. Yeah. So had it not been for that little base, then uh, BC could have been Russian. We'd huh? all be speaking Canadian right now, Dave. No, I've got that backwards. I think they'd be speaking America. Yes, in, right. in, in, in British Columbia. Yes. Make sure we we make it clear who would have won that one. Helix Bunnell brought to us by Lake Washington Windows and Doors. You can find all his features at mynorthwest.com. Thank you, Helix. Thanks, Dave. For this is Cairo, where modern adventure and intrigue unfold against a backdrop of antiquity. For this edition of From the Archives, Guy Reed Ramsey tracked down the history of every post office in Washington from the 19th century to the 1960s. Let's talk post office. The future of the U.S. Post Office might seem a bit uncertain these days, but the past history of the Post Office is pretty secure. Historian Felix Bunnell says that's all because of an Oregon man who devoted his spare time to documenting the history of every single post office that ever operated in the state of Washington. That's quite a hobby. Felix is brought to us by the King County Library System. Good morning. Good morning, Dave. You sound like Ed McMahon there for a second talking to Karnak. <laughs> Uh, every single post office. Every uh, single post office. <laughs> <laughs> this is a story about a guy, Reed Ramsey. He died 40 years ago, but he left behind this incredible legacy. He spent about three decades putting it together. It's like an almanac of post office history in Washington from the 1850s up to the 18 1960s, with the dates they were established, the names of the early postmasters, 
plus great context for each community, the story of what was going on when the post office first opened. Now, this might seem obscure at first glance, but post office history is local history. It's a great indicator of growth and economic and social development from a time when the state we know now was first taking shape. And a post office, in those days especially, of course, meant vital connections to other parts of the country. Ed Nolan is the head of special collections for the Washington State Historical Society at Tacoma. He told me it's pretty amazing when an amateur like Guy Ramsey creates something like this. Hobbyists, which is what he was, sometimes produce pretty important works. He was a a postal history collector, for one thing, and and that's what also helped uh, you know fuel his his interest and in wanting to know where every place was. You know, one unfortunate thing is that the entire project, you know, the information for the entire state, was never published in a single volume, but several counties and regions published their own versions in sections. Each of those is called Postmarked Washington. Now, Ed Nolan consults those volumes regularly to answer research questions. He says that beyond the data, the granular data, Guy Ramsey compiled a lot of priceless interviews. He has so many anecdotal things where he has talked to uh, old postmasters and postmistresses, particularly postmistresses, I think, because they outlived the postmasters. But, um, uh, I mean, it's pretty phenomenal in that way. And, you know, I mean, he writes himself that anything that's done in oral history is subject to human recollection and and the defects that that can create. But he he tried to verify everything whenever possible. Now, with help from the State Library down in Tumwater, I was able to connect with Guy Ramsey's two sons, who are both in their 80s. The eldest is Lee Ramsey. He's a retired English professor who lives near Chicago. He told me his dad grew up in Missouri and had a pretty difficult early life. He was 16 years old when his father died. They didn't have much money. So dad went to work at that time. And he supported the family. Uh, Uncle Ralph once told me many years later, your dad was my dad. It's such a common 20th century story where the, you know, the father passes away and the oldest yeah. son has to be put to work. Um, so Guy Ramsey was in his early 20s when he served in the Navy in World War I. After that, he made his way west and went to the University of Washington and the University of Washington Forestry School. He then worked as a forester in Iowa for about a decade and then came back to the Northwest where he got a job as a salesman for a wood treatment company based in Portland. Now, that meant driving around over a huge amount of territory including all of Washington, for weeks at a time. And that's when he started visiting post offices and talking to people. So this is way back in the 1940s. Now, it's clear to me that Guy Ramsey was a collector. He was a bird watcher. He took photos of flowers. Um, the post office focus, his sons think, probably grew from being a stamp collector and a collector of postal covers. Those are envelopes that have rare cancellation marks, um, a whole other field beyond stamps. He had a huge collection of those. Now, his son Lee says his dad, even in a way, collected a certain type of hitchhiker. When he saw a hitchhiker with a uniform on, he picked them up, and he kept a little book in the in the back seat of the car, asking all of the uh, all of the servicemen to sign their names. Wow. So I love this. He has like a guest book for military yeah. hitchhikers. He keeps in the back of the car. Now, Guy Ramsey's youngest son, Fred Ramsey, lives in Corvallis. Fred Ramsey said that on those long road trips in a company-provided Chevy sedan, they got a new one every two years, even on family trips in the summer, his father just loved talking to people about post offices. He would talk to 
people involved with uh, post offices that were in existence and in places that were not. Uh, he'd ask around about when there when there was a post office, where it was. He'd take pictures, talk to people, and uh, put together information on all of the post offices that the that had existed. You know, both sons told me their dad was quiet. Um, it seems to me he took the post office project seriously without being obsessive about it. It wasn't like he was, you know, bending everybody's ear about what he was doing or why it was important. He was just doing it. Probably probably speaks more to his generation than, than anything else. Um, it was Guy Ramsey's focus, especially after he retired in 1960, but it wasn't an all-consuming passion. Um, now, Guy Ramsey's wife, Ida, this is Fred and Lee's mom, she enjoyed natural things and shared her husband's interest in flowers and bird watching in particular. But according to Lee Ramsey, the post office work was a different matter. Did your mom share your dad's enthusiasm for the, the work? No. <laughs> <laughs> Did she tolerate it or support it? or how, What was her feeling about tolerate. it? She <laughs> tolerated. And, you know, tolerating something is often a kind gift we can do for the people in our lives. Now, um, Guy Ramsey also published a book for Iowa that he compiled back in the 1930s. Um, I think it was published uh, in post offices? Yeah, it's called Postmarked Iowa. Um, I've seen copies on, for sale online for about 200 bucks. It's something like 600 pages. Now, the, the sad thing about this is that the statewide book for Washington just never came together. Um, 26 of the 39 counties are covered in about a dozen little books issued by various historical societies in different parts of the state. They're all called Postmark Washington and then have the county names after it. These little, mostly little paperbacks. There's a few hardbacks. Um, but some of the counties not published include King and Snohomish, you know, the ones that probably have some of the richest history. Yeah. Now, the State Library down there in Tumwater, they have all of his material on microfilm, like all the notes, because it must have been a, a voluminous collection of material. I think he had a basement full of stuff there in his house in Portland. Um, and the State Library, they're working to someday put all that online somehow, because, again, you know, he had the data there about the dates, and that's fine. But the, the depth of detail that he went into in describing the context for why the post office was here I guess so that's, he was apparently I was ask you what do you what do you write about in the book about post offices? Yeah, and, I mean it's all about about the communities and and his favorite apparently okay. were these ghost post offices where you know it's only there from like you know 1875 to 1882 because it's a you know it's a mining town that is only yeah. there as a speculative thing and then it goes away and it's just it's this whole untold history that without this sort of long reach of the federal government even in those days you wouldn't have this backstory about what was really going on here in Washington during these really formative years so. The hope is someday all the material becomes available. It would be great to have a big, giant, like 10,000-page Washington volume. I'd love to have one of those on my shelf. I'd love I, to have I a, think a I'll wait for the movie, though. <laughs> Felix Spinell joins us every Wednesday. All his features are on MyNorthwest.com. Have a good day, Felix. You too. Thanks, David. Things are swinging in Seattle. Things are swinging in Seattle. It's the place for me. And now for the Never Green Minute, a roundup of exhibits, tours, talks, and other history events happening around the Pacific Northwest. First up, the Columbia River Maritime Museum in Astoria, Oregon, offers spring break programs from Monday, March 21st through Friday, March 25th. Learn about scrimshaw, hardtack, and early trading with daily programs for all ages. More info at crmm.org. Next up, the exhibit Many Wests, Artists, Shape, and American Idea is now open at the Watka Museum in Bellingham. It features artists, the museum says, 
who offer a broad and more inclusive view of the West, which too often has been dominated by romanticized myths and Euro-American historical accounts. More info at whatcomemuseum.org. And coming up late next week, the Jefferson County Historical Society in Port Townsend will present its first Friday speaker series for April on Friday, April 1st at 7 p.m. Doug Chin will talk about Chinese in Port Townsend and Washington State. More info and registration at jchsmuseum.org. We'll have more history happenings on next week's edition of the Never Green Minute. I'm Felix Bunnell at Cairo News Radio in Seattle. You can follow me on Twitter and read my stories and see my photo galleries at MyNorthwest.com. If you like what you hear, please do share with a friend and please take a moment to give us a positive rating or review. Thanks for listening and please join me again for the next episode of The Resident Historian. And it is with this thought that we most reluctantly conclude our glimpses of Washington State. Do you have a ski boat, Dave, or a fishing I, boat? No, I do not. <laughs> <laughs>